Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives podcast. My name is Oliver Hartwig and we're joined by our newest research fellow, Dr. Tony Burton. Hi, Tony. Hi, how are you going, Oliver? Great to have you on the podcast. Great to have you at the initiative. You have just started and most people probably wouldn't be familiar with you yet. So let's just introduce you to our listeners. You are Tony Burton. You are a PhD qualified economist. You have previously worked in the public sector, both in New Zealand and in Britain. Maybe explain, first of all, where are you actually coming from, quite literally? (laughs) I am a very typical child of the military. So the answer to that question is everywhere. Everywhere. (laughs) So I I lived in a number of different places in Britain and Cyprus. Unfortunately, my parents, for various reasons, didn't want to go to Germany, but they had an opportunity to do so. And uh, and so all over Britain is the answer to that. When I left Britain, I was living in Leeds. Right. And how did you become an economist? I've always had an interest in in the widest sense, you know, how societies, how, how things happen in society. I think I became interested in economics simply because it felt to me the best attempt to actually understand empirically, to actually look at what people did, how people responded to each other, and have a go at that rather than thinking of theory as in that sense of high theory that sociologists mix in with literary critics. So did that interest in economics begin at school for you or did that develop later at university? It began, it, there was definitely that school. I, when I was, I think, 15, I won a school prize and I got Adam Smith as my uh, sort of book as a sort of prize. But um, at that time I was more interested in natural sciences and maths and I, I still have that interest to, to some extent. But I think... But, Part of it was that when I left school, I spent a year doing voluntary work, and part of on a what, what, that this was the 1980s, so that there was this move towards the community care, and I became I think that it showed me m- many of the problems that you know many of the problems that within that, that we can be trying to tackle, and if we, we're trying to tackle the what we're trying to do is to not just be responsive, but actually think about what would what. What can we do to make the world more, more able to deal with the kind of problems? So the, the person I was helping was somebody who had, frankly, most of his problems had actually been created by the system that he'd been put into. Right. So, you mentioned Britain in the 1980s, so yeah. I imagine it would have been hard not to be politicised in the 1980s in Britain. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, I, I come from, a, fair to say, a not particularly well-off family. And, you know, I quote these things. My great-great-grandfather died in a workhouse. My great-grandfather died in the Somme. My father can remember scrabbling around on the beach in the northeast of England for coal because that was how people did at the time. So I come from that kind of that's that kind of sort of background. And I think in the 1980s you observed really what, what, what the kind of great readjustment after the economic failures of the 50s and 60s. It was and the high time of Thatcherism. It was the high time of Thatcherism. I, I think in what will happen as time goes on is people will see the changes there very much in the particular context created by the 50s and 60s. So the, the, it was a very political time and I was interested in those changes there. I th- Where did your family stand then, out of curiosity, coming from this working class background? Sure. You already mentioned Adam Smith. I know that another great influence on you is Hayek, who was Thatcher's hero. Mm. But you're coming from a background that would have probably not appreciated all of this initially. I did, certainly not initially. I think when I look back on myself, I think the the key confusion is that I've been always been a great interested in the 
people like George Orwell, and George Orwell, in a very inarticulate way, sorry, he's a very good writer, very, uh, but, uh, but his politics was always a little bit inarticulate. What he wanted to see was a better society than what he was observing in the 30s and 40s. But at the same time, he saw the way that using the state was actually quite corrosive. So there's a very so Orwell, for instance, in the forties reviewed Hayek's Road to Serfdom, and was a, and contrary to he was actually a great fan of the Road to Serfdom. He thought it was a very useful way of understanding the, these kinds of even things. though Orwell himself came from the left. Very definitely so. I, I mean, if if you wanted to push this further, I mean, if you read people like I don't know, as I have done in the past, read people like Trotsky, for instance, you can see underlying some of the some of the thinking that those people had when they had experienced, they had this kind of deep tension inside themselves. On the one hand, they wanted to promote a certain view of the world. On the other hand, they had experienced, and Trotsky says it killed him, <laughs> they had experienced the, the, what the violence and the the reality of kind of facing, of using the state in the kind of way that he the, he wished to use it. And I think Orwell the same. I mean, Orwell was in Spain. He, he was... I think he described it as he was one step ahead of Stalin's death squads, right? <laughs> when he left Spain in 1937, so yeah, and that that tension was there. That tension runs throughout, including Orwell's writings in the 1930s, as well as the more famous ones in the 1940s. So you became interested in political ideas and economic ideas early on. You studied economics. You got your PhD at the University of East Anglia. Yep, and that was in game theory. I mean, we probably all heard something about game theory, but for our non-economist listeners, could you explain in a sentence or two what game theory is? It's probably more than just playing board games. <laughs> so board games are usually games of chance, right? That, that there's a dice that's thrown and, and how that dice throw gets it. Game theory, and that goes back to the, to the 18th century. Game theory is an attempt to develop that from the mid-20th century to try and strategic, that's dealing with other people and the fact that you know that other people are going to be trying to have better moves than you. And you can you can reduce that down to thinking of them as like automata, right? Or you can try to think much harder about what, and those who've seen A Beautiful Mind, well, there's a sort of attempt there to explain Nash equilibrium. But yes. the idea in there is that... So well, the, what Nash did essentially was try to have, find a, a more ma a simple mathematical way for understanding how people might respond to other people who are equally trying to respond to them. So yeah. it's basically people responding to incentives and you're trying to figure out what the next move is going to be. It is. The, the key shift that the game theory does is it has, so unlike more conventional economics prior to then, it as it were, it took as given the, the market, the, the sort of other people, What this does is says actually quite a lot of decision making takes place within relative with a relatively small number of actors. So you can think, for instance, of the monopoly in, in the electricity industry in New Zealand, or indeed the supermarket industry, which is we have two or three players, and you can't really treat the two or th the other couple of players in that market as if they are as they, as given because they are thinking, trying to work out what you're doing, and you're trying to work out what they're doing, and. And they know that you're trying to work out what they're doing, so they're trying to work it out. And that's the kind of thing that game theory, or one of the ways, in fact, game theory is applied in modern economics. So you already mentioned John Nash. Mm -hmm. Another name probably would be Reinhard Selten. Mm -hmm. I think they jointly won the Nobel Prize then uh, for the development of game theory. But the development of game theory happened in parallel with another school of thought, and that's public choice. So there we're talking about people like Gordon Tullock and James Buchanan, 
both actually starting around the 1950s, 60s, and both developing in parallel. But actually, in your work and your thinking, you have married the two. I, ha I, th I think there is a huge amount of overlap between those ideas. I think the key, just stepping back, I think one of the big mistakes people who promote government as the solution to, to everything do is they treat the people working within government, for want of a better word, as kind of benign zombies. Right, that they they don't they they just want the public good and they you, you, as it were you whisper to them and they just move forward with that, and that's a deep mistake. It, it's, and that it's was the conventional view of economics. So once you turn yeah. someone who is otherwise a rational actor in their private lives into a public servant or a politician, uh, the assumption was that they would work towards the greater public good. And, and it's clearly ridiculous. I mean, it, it, actually, if you just I mean, as someone who's worked in the public service for like twenty years, yeah, I was going to get to that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what my experience is what you might call of rounded human beings. Rounded human beings care about their families. They care about their hobbies. They care about their careers. They care about the amount they earn. They care about the, you know the respect that other people have around them. All those influence how they act and. What public choice does is try to fit that wider human humanity into a framework that can fit into other parts of the way economics works, right? And I think my, my view is that it does this very successfully when you think about budgets. So when you, when you think about that more financial side of what government does, and it's a, it's a crucial part. And when you work in treasury, it's clearly very very important. But I think. The other side of government, the, the kind of more substantive side of government, it's sometimes uh, runs aground of the of the fact that people that the kind of mix of that kind of mix of motives generates people who don't necessarily work around certain financial incentives. It's it's much harder to use financial incentives, and some of them are good and some of them are bad. I mean, it's not like they, you know, people are angelic once you move away from money. But the it, it, and I think that's something they need. That's a kind of different history that will go back to people like Machiavelli and Hobbes. Um, Nietzsche and so on, where you think about the, that would be one side of it. It was kind of interesting to me, as part actually starting off in this project, to look at the way that people talk about public servants. And there is a kind of growing recognition, unfortunately it hasn't had much impact in New Zealand, but a growing recognition that the benign zombie view really doesn't work, right? Even if you're a very strong believer in the state and the state's role, it creates all kinds of problems, all kinds of shortcomings to the way you understand what what's going to happen with policy. So as someone schooled in public choice economics and game theory, you would have assumed that every actor in the public sphere has their own self-interest. Self mm. They would act to maximize their personal utility, whatever else it might be. Mm. And then you would marry this with game theory where you try to predict behavior. But then you made the transition, of course, from academia into the public service. And you first worked in Britain. You worked in health, in the UK Ministry of Health, and then you came to New Zealand almost 20 years ago and, and continued your public service career, actually working for Treasury here. So you've actually gained insights in two different countries in their respective public service administrations. And what did you learn and how did this compare then to your theoretical work as an economist on game theory and public choice? So I think in some ways it it reinforced some of my beliefs about that. I mean, you actually. Why did you become a public servant? Did you want to test your theories? I think so. It was actually this is an example of a personal motivation. I I found I wanted to I wanted to do rather than just talk about and research, and I th and that's always motivated me. I think the sense that 
I mean, game theory, I'm aware, has some great abstraction in and of itself. But even, I mean, what people call applied economics in in academia is not really very applied. I mean, in academia, you can um, go go find any data set and then test a theory. In in the, the world of economists working within the public service, you can't do that. You've got the subject and you work with whatever data is available. And I find that more interesting, more challenging intellectually challenging in many ways than than the other way around because you your the constraints are just so much greater did the academic inside you then watch the public service servant that you were and try to analyze whether you're actually working according to your own theory <laughs> well i'm a very bad example you see i'm uh, <laughs> i'm an economist who you didn't maximize your utility <laughs> <laughs> no no i didn't and i, I do i mean i'm a very good example of uh, of that i do think that the big so that one of my the challenges i'd offer to a public choice right in many ways would be so if again if you look at the academic theory it's that they dislike public choice because they say claims that public servants are very cynical right and if you at a human to human level you know as i said it's, it's a wide range of people they're rounded sometimes cynical sometimes not but the thing that the public choice theory lacks actually is that kind of different theory where you say people you know to be sort of it's like a conversation about that people some people like telling other people what to do right and in an pub in a government which is hierarchical not not because people want it to be hierarchical necessarily but just because it has to be because you have elected representatives and the people in the public service must respond to them so someone tells someone what to do right that that actually that that desire to be to to be close to leadership is part of part of the psychology of the institution of the people in the institutions of government and that has a very big influence on the way that those institutions operate and thinking about that financially which i think often is done in the public choice is is not always the the most powerful way of doing that so mm. that you have people who are quite prepared to sacrifice financial reward right and because they want to be in charge of stuff <laughs> you know and i think that's that's not always i think properly understood in the public choice framework mm. so i assume as a public servant you had your formative years in the uk mm. And then you moved to New Zealand. And what was the biggest difference there? What what actually surprised you when you arrived here and worked uh, for Treasury so, uh, and I've, other ministries? So I've I mean I've I've enjoyed my time in New Zealand, and I I think the answer to your question: the biggest difference between Britain and New Zealand is that in Britain, as, as in many ways, the civil service reflects British culture much more closely. I think New Zealand. In which a, way? So Britain is a democratic country, but I wouldn't say it had a particularly democratic culture. I think New Zealand it's has a class a, system, basically. So, so the, the, the class system, it's reflected in the class system, yes, mm. but that, that sense that hierarchy of, of hierarchy, whereas in New which Zealand... New Zealand really doesn't have. Which in, well, in the population, I think in the general population, it doesn't have. I think the civil service on the island is many ways, I mean, it's one of the perhaps bad legacies from Britain is that it still retains that quite hierarchical sense of the way the world works and it's it's interesting you say it's a bad legacy because most people would actually think this is one of Britain's greatest gifts to us <laughs> I think it's made I think I, I, I would actually so historically New Zealand actually had quite a big break with the British system in 1912 when it introduced the Public Service Commission then and what that did is it created a very it distance the institution of the public service from the public representatives 
So it, it's had a very, it's had a, an, a, you know, self-consciously, I mean, that was the desire, that was the intent in 1912. So the, the political intent in 1912 was because people were worried about the influence of Seddon, right? But what has happened is the institution has then become really very distinct. And as I said, one of the cultural elements to that is around hierarchy. It's a pity they didn't have game theorists at the time. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Because, <laughs> because, no, because it would have been relatively easy to predict in how, what direction this would go, right? For, for sure. And, and indeed, and I think the worst excesses of the centralising state in New Zealand have come through that decision, that you've created a, it's, it's like you've put a black hole at the centre of... So that's... that's, that, no, that's, <laughs> that's, that's you, right, you put sure. a heavily gravitational uh, object at the centre of the system, and that's what we've observed. So, so you would say we're basically the slaves of history. The, the system is, yeah, it has been very much so. I mean, to give you a couple of examples, the so New Zealand started out with provinces which were abandoned in the 19th century. Yes. But what has happened is that there's a, a kind of bizarre folk memory in government which has no rational... But that somehow that there's never the capability in the regions to actually to manage public resources and so on, or to, to, to operate. So, I, I mean, I've I recently started, just because as part of this project, just thinking about things, and I recently saw that up until the 1980s in New Zealand, things like driver's licences were actually devolved, right? You would, if you were in Nelson, you would have a driver's licence from Nelson, right? But the that history of, of actually uh, even those elements of regional sort of things being run regionally are lost, and it's lost because we have this institution whose almost whose day job is to 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 undermine any kind of memory of the fact that we did were at one point New Zealand was at one point much more devolved and to to, to centralize and continually centralize in the name sometimes of efficiency. Yes, it seems to be a feature of New Zealand history. I mean, the centralization also happened in the UK, of course. Yeah. I believe the UK once had a very devolved system where town halls, I mean, look at Manchester Town Hall, mm. it's almost as magnificent as the Palace of Westminster, and it symbolizes something, namely that once upon a time these cities in Britain were very independent. They are, and you can, I mean, what you're saying in Manchester, you can see it in places like Leeds, Glasgow, Edinburgh, even in places like Newcastle, and certainly Birmingham. The, that sense of civic of the of distinct civic pride. I mean, it, it it's really relatively recent that you had those big changes. That's from like the sixties and seventies, mm. and uh, it is. So New Zealand preceded that. Uh, so New Zealand preceded that. Yeah, I mean, New Zealand. I mean, unsurprisingly, in many ways, because New Zealand just has a completely different. I mean, history. Obviously, the, the start with the Maori and the British nineteenth century, but the the context of New Zealand is so different from Britain that it's not surprising that it moved away. Um, so the centralising aspect is one main feature of the New Zealand system. The other one is actually the dichotomy between the political government and the permanent government of the public service. Is that very different from how Britain plays out these days? Uh, so I think that one of the, going back to what you were saying about the difference in class, I think there is that class element which makes those two elements closer together in the way that that Britain works in practice. Probably the electoral terms make a difference too. So in New Zealand we have three-year terms and that means governments change all the time. They change quite frequently. In Britain it's now five years and they had to change I think about a decade ago to make this a real fixed five-year term which also means politicians are usually going to stay around a bit longer and therefore the public service can't completely ignore them. Whereas <laughs> in New Zealand it seems to be sometimes a different matter, right? I think because uh, I think this is an interesting question to be explored because I know at the moment there's this discussion about extending terms in New Zealand. I have a so the the 
pushback I'd do on that was that the one what it if you're one of the things that I think is missing often from debate is just how hard a job it is to be a minister, right? And in that context, what you need to do is you need to have people around you who can help, or you just need to trust people around you to help you to do much of it, which is where the civil service gets its a lot of its influence. It's a hard job in any case, but do you think it is harder being a minister in New Zealand compared to being a minister in Britain? Oh, in Britain? That's an interesting question. It's a... It, no, I think British ministers probably have it easier. I mean, for a start, you just have 130, there's basically 130 people in the in government in various different ways. And, and that's ministers. more than we have in place. So, that's right. We have more than, I mean, we're here, it's like 20 to 30 people. Yeah. So that would be the first thing. I think the second is that in Britain, and I suspect in Germany as well, you have far wider non-state institutions that are providing all yes. kinds of balancing advice. In New Zealand, this is one of the you know, one of the nice things about the initiative, right? Is the fact that it does provide that that additional, and there are really yeah, very we are few. the New Zealand think tank. I mean, the, the single in <laughs> 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 uh, Westminster, and I worked at Westminster. So there are 20, 25 think tanks, yeah. all across the political spectrum. That's right. The other side that I've definitely noticed is around academia is that if you were a minister looking for broad support, the academic, and I've never, I've in my head, I've never been able to untangle whether it's you know in Britain you've got like ninety plus institutions in New Zealand you have eight and whether that's just simply smaller numbers or whether that's something else around the history of the institutions that doesn't see that kind of external support what that means in New Zealand is the is that in New Zealand much greater weight is placed upon the individual ministers themselves because it's just hard you don't have that kind of support and that the, therefore much greater weight placed on the civil service because they're the people you have more contact with in terms of the substance of what you need to do. Now, we're already in the middle of the discussion on the public service, and I yeah. should have pointed out, of course, that this is going to be your project for the next half a year. That's right. <laughs> because we've hired you to work on a project to analyse the nature of the public service and actually how to make the public service work better. Can you just explain roughly your thinking, your working hypotheses? What would you like to find out with this project and what kind of recommendations could we expect? So I think that the... The starting point really for, for me is the 2020 Public Service Act, which I think is unambiguously a mistake. It is... Uh, what did it do? <laughs> so the Public Service Act... So the, the reforms in the 1980s, well, essentially what they did is they clarified res uh, accountabilities and responsibilities in the New Zealand Public Service. So if... That was when Roderick Dean was chair of the State Service Commission. Roderick, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and what it, what it but the, this was those reforms weren't driven by the, the State Service Commission. They were driven by Treasury, and they that was good and it was bad. So the good side, I think, was that the use of economics and the thinking of economics. I think they were they did have a make some mistakes, and the, the two that that stand out is one is that the frankly the capability in the system, and by the system here, I mean. Public service was not there to implement what people were asked to do in the 1980s, and it hasn't developed. Right, that's the first thing. I think the second was there was an extraordinary optimism that people would be happy to identify what they what they were being asked to do. You know, to, to actually to participate in that clarification process. And some of the the worst documents in in New Zealand government are the documents which are meant to be these contracts which were proposed in the 1980s between the public service and ministers. And I encourage anybody who wants to understand some of these, they just have to look at how 
how weak they were. And that's a crucial part of the 1980s reforms because those contracts were what set what the public service was meant to do for ministers. And if they are... And if they aren't particularly good, then it actually weakens the hold it has. So what happened in 2020? Sorry, sorry. No, 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 I'm just trying to get this uh, clear in my head. So you previously told us that the 1912 model uh, never really worked and was a complete disaster. Then you say the 1984 reforms of that model made it even worse. And then you say the 2020 reform of the 1984 model based on the 1912 model made it even worse. So uh, not quite. So we've got a disaster built on a disaster built on a disaster. So what I did say was the 1912 reforms centralised the system so that they created... That's bad enough. (laughs) (laughs) So I think, I mean, the 1912... So part of the what the 1912... They created a kind of much more professionalised civil service. Right, and they did this by heavy centralisation and a kind of centripetal towards uh, to centralisation. And then eighty four put it on speed. And what eighty four what eighty four did is it didn't address the centralisation. That was one of the clear weaknesses mm. of those. And instead, it you tried to use contracts between yeah. ministers and the civil service. It, I mean, it had its successes and it had failures. So the, the success around transparency was really quite clear. Mm-hmm. Right? It is far more financially transparent than it was prior to the 1980s. And, and, and those who know the 1980s context, where the, the, you had, had a, a prime minister who was also a minister of finance, able to bully the system into building up all kinds of debts. Yep. And, and so what this did is try to limit that possibility. But what it didn't do, the way I've, I've heard this described by a friend of mine was that if you think of, of kind of a, what would cost-effective government look like, You'd say you'd number of widgets of governance, whatever that is, divided by the cost. What a novel way of thinking about efficiency. <laughs> <laughs> right. And if you thought and the thing is that this was done by Treasury. Yeah. So Treasury were fantastic at implementing these financial accountability and transparency. That they, they did that really very well. But what they didn't really have a good sense of is, you know, if, if you're working in MSD, which is where I have worked in the, the past, what, what would success for the Ministry of Social Development meaningfully look like? That, you know, it, you know it, the, the, all the questions about causality, for instance. I mean, do, yeah. does, do we, does the Ministry of Social Development ever actually cause the number of unemployed to go down? That, that's really quite hard. And if you're doing an accountability document, you know, some, a, you know basically of thousand people in that ministry plus wins right are being judged on their performance to be clear about what these people should be accountable for is absolutely crucial to making these documents meaningful and bill english tried a lot in that regard with a social investment approach so he did so bill english is so one of the reasons that um the kind of secondary reasons why i'm doing this project now was my horror at the response to bill english's work i think bill english the in all that time I've worked in government over about 25 years in Britain and New Zealand, the single best idea I've ever observed was Bill English's social social investment. It was an attempt to actually change the system. So it was all about care, you know, a system that was designed for the poorest in society and it was changing it so all the financial incentives worked to help the people at the, at the bottom. And then you had this kind of primarily academic response, but more widely than that. But that hasn't really survived the change of government. So what's left of investment approach is really just uh, the language, the breaking down the silos, but nobody really does it anymore. I think that's right. And when we say, you know, that they are are people, meant to be people outside of government who understand what government is doing, right? Um, We're trying our best. (laughs) And I think, but the the, the initiative, I think, is in many ways a lone voice in defence of this. And and that does a, at so many levels, that is a 
appalling statement that the people that the people who are claiming to be wanting to help the poorest in society are have actively tried to campaign against and undermine an attempt to make the incentives in the system of government work so the system helps the poorest in society. Seems to me really quite an indictment <laughs> of that so wider commentary. If your project works, what would be the outcome? I, th I think the main outcome you see was just go government would be better, and better in this context means that what what was what government set out to do, what money was spent on, would achieve what it could achieve, right? And it's it's a kind of quite limited in in some ways, but the the the, the reality is the government is a limit is it has limited. It's not something that can do everything, but it can set itself out to do some things. That sounds relatively straightforward, but if you think about the new hero education minister trying to really change the way education works and keeping in mind, of course, that we have abysmally bad education outcomes currently, it should be a relatively straightforward task to reform what is obviously not working, but that's not the way it currently turns out. It, it doesn't, and I think the institutions that we have, whether it's the Ministry of Education and to a less extent some of the, the sort of educational industry, are clearly un unhappy with attempts to substantially change the pr their practice right and in particular from my perspective the ministry of education which should be one of the main levers of government is clearly not succeeding so if i try to summarize your project as saying you try to improve new zealand's reformability would that be a fair summary yeah i think that's yes yes is the answer to that and i, th I think the one thing i would add though to reformability i think we we don't just want reform for reform's sake. Of course we not. We want better outcomes. We want better outcomes, exactly. And I think that ultimately is the, is the, is the criterion for judging it. In which case, we can only wish you all the best for the project. Thank you. And it's great to have you here. And we will see what game theory adds to the initiative work. <laughs> Thank you. <Alan. laughs> Thank you.